Welcome back, Rebels. Welcome back. Uh, recently, we were talking about whether we should do a Instagram masterclass for you guys. And a lot of people got back to us and said, yes, that is a thing that you would like to listen to. Um, so we're definitely going to do that. But me and Adam were just talking off, off mic a minute ago about how Instagram is not the be all and end all. A lot of times when it comes to social media platforms, people think, OK, well, my business is going to be my account on social media. And they don't really think outside of that. Whereas I think what you need to think for social media is as a way to drive traffic to your website, to, to your business for you to be able to make money. And it's not putting your actual business as the platform. Because if like Facebook, Instagram kind of gets quieter or dies or people don't carry on using it for the next five years, then suddenly your business disappears. Whereas actually, if you're always driving traffic to your business, your website, something that you own, that's a much better way to do it. And I think if driving traffic is the goal there, then actually, yeah, Instagram doesn't have to be the only place you can go to. Somewhere like Pinterest, if your audience is there, might be a much better place to invest your time in. LinkedIn, if your audience is there, might be a much better place to invest your time in. Firstly, you need to think about who your audience is currently in terms of like not the people who are just looking at your post, liking your post, sharing your post, but the people who are actually purchasing from you. Because I think understanding the difference between those two different audiences is the perfect place to start because I might be like, oh yeah, cool. All my audience are photographers. So I'm going to post on Instagram where where all they are. We're actually, I've never made a penny from another photographer. So actually, yeah. who actually pays me the money? And then thinking about, well, where do those people hang out? Like, would that be TikTok? Would that be Pinterest? Would that be completely offline? Would that be me going to where those people are in person? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's interesting to use the photographer example because if you were selling courses that were how to take a, an amazing photo or if you were selling After Effects um, editing software, that would be really useful for that audience so yeah. that you would definitely be able to make a living from that. But I mean, it's definitely something I've heard you speak about before is the the when you first start an account, the people that are most likely to follow you are going to be your peers. They're going to be people that do the same thing as you. And those aren't always necessarily going to be your actual customers unless you provide a service for the, the people that do the same kind of thing that you do. I think so much of it comes down to understanding the difference between sales and marketing. As a whole, your social media accounts, whichever they may be. And I mean, you can have multiple social media accounts. Like it, it just means there's going to be more upkeep. The, the plants in your garden that do the best are the ones that are continuously watered. And it's exactly the same on social media. If you post once every two weeks on LinkedIn, it's not going to be as popping as if you post every day on LinkedIn, same as any other platform. So choose as many platforms as you can keep up with that, that aren't going to take too much of your time. So it's working out, I, like I don't want people to go, okay, I'm going to set up every single account under the sun and then and then be too stretched because they haven't got time for all of them. But anyway, back to sales and marketing. It's like your your social media platforms are marketing you as a creative at all times because they are a, a good representation of what you, what you do, but they are not necessarily a sales tool. Like I, I, I think selling can be done so well once you've got the awareness through posting your work online. Sales can be done really much better rather than like posting a post and asking for a sale, which can work and does work, should should be done every now and then, but like not all the time. You can really do a lot more asking if you've got people's email addresses that you've collected for a mailing list, if you've, you're getting inquiries through to your website, if you're working the DM systems across different platforms because people really neglect those. Um, 
or you're using your stories, especially if you've got the swipe up feature um, to be generating sales that way. So once you understand that, then you can learn how to use them for business rather than just just like showing off. Here's the thing that I've done. There's two things you said there that I kind of want to go into. So I think the first thing you went to a garden analogy about kind of watering your things and then those are going to grow. I think that's great. And I think to elaborate on that further, it's also thinking about, okay, well, what am I going to plant in that garden and how long, how much effort is it going to take to get one piece of fruit back? If you're going to have to be there 10 hours a day, constantly watering, constantly nurturing it to get one bit of fruit compared to, say like a pineapple, for example, to grow a pineapple, you get one pineapple on the plant and that takes so much work to get that one pineapple. Whereas if you grew like an apple tree, then it's probably going to take the same amount of effort, might take a few more years to grow, but then you're going to get hundreds of pieces of fruit from that. So it's working out your time to value ratio as well, because I imagine most people listening to this are freelancers, people working on their own, and you only have so much time. And I know that that really stresses people out when there's all these different social media platforms popping off and you feel like, oh shit, I need to be on all of them. Whereas actually, if you, you need to kind of work out by trying them all, I think to start with, it's worth trying them all to see which reaps the most rewards and then go all in on that platform. And I think that might not be the one that you think it is. I am going to challenge you a little bit on that one. So to given that you are the analogy king, I will come back to you with bamboo and bamboo um, grows quietly underneath the surface for five years before it then all of a sudden shoots up and does this massive shoot in like a, like I don't know how quick it is but I know it's really really fast it like shoots up out, out of the surface but it's incubating under the soil for five years and so when you look at a creator like Beeple who for the past 15 years has been creating a piece of digital artwork every single day posting it just gradually slowly slowly growing slowly slowly growing and then all of a sudden sells his nfts for however many millions of dollars that they sold for and is now like i mean just absolute king of the digital art space because he was growing bamboo as opposed to, as opposed to growing a few pineapples now and then having moldy fruit later i'm not good at analogies i don't know <laughs> But then, to, but then, people has been working professionally as a digital artist for clients for years. It's not like he was just a guy sat in his room making no money for the past fifteen years, and then all of a yeah. sudden, boom! Here's his millions of dollars. He's he's been working professionally for a really long time, and he's been getting the awareness around what he does through posting consistently on those platforms. And most of what he does and most of his income will just come from client projects that he'll probably never talk about on social media but ones that come through because people know that he can do those those particular jobs. And what you were talking about sales and marketing before, like if you actually do sell a lot through Instagram, then it's like, how can you get people to there? And I know that TikTok is the perfect platform. I've seen loads of people absolutely blow up on Instagram because they've gone elsewhere to find the audience and bring those people back into the ecosystem that they normally sell from. And I think Clubhouse was a perfect example as well as when that first popped off. It was like people could get so many followers really quickly by being on the Clubhouse platform, mentioning you have an Instagram account, and then just seeing people come over. Sometimes I think it's easier to grow outside of the areas where you actually sell if there's more attention there and the marketing's easier. Yeah, I was talking to an artist recently who just started going in all of the rooms where all the millionaires hang out on Clubhouse um, and just wait, like waiting for hours to get up on stage, get up on stage deliver value, but then just mention, then people would be like, oh, so what do you do? And she would just mention that she does pencil drawings and she's, her prices start at £5,000 and all of a sudden she's found all of her clients. She's doing really, really well. She found them all on Clubhouse. Um, Spotify have just released their 
competitor to Clubhouse called, I think it's called Green Rooms. Um, so I was in there yesterday having a little experiment with that. So there's always these these platforms popping up. But you mentioned TikTok there, and I think it's it's such an important platform because we've been banging on about it for at least a year now, I think. And I bet there's a load of you who have thought, oh, well, I'll probably get on there at some point. And you are missing out. Like I've been on there a year and I wish I was on there a year sooner, but it's still not too late. And I think people need to realize that there, there's so much hard work that goes into social media that if if there's anything out there that can make it a little bit easier and going viral can definitely make things easier, then like utilize that. And certainly TikTok is definitely the platform for going viral. It's happening right now as we speak. It's one of those platforms that's worth getting on, understanding and just getting that awareness around it because I see because I'm seeing a lot of the moment bigger brands who don't know how to use it panicking because they see it blowing up so much and then looking for people who do know how to use it and then just getting them to do it for them. So for example, there's like someone that I know who I actually found out yesterday that they're now managing uh, quite a famous band's TikTok account. And they've just been given the, the login and this account is just managed by them. It's their face on everything. It's actually nothing to do with the band, but they're growing the awareness because that band wants to have a presence on the platform. And they're just using every single song that they use to make TikToks with is always a song by this band. That's just because that person has invested time into the platform to learn how to do it. So I think if you always want to kind of stay relevant, I think being relevant is the key here as well. Because it's like if you're if you're if your clientele are all really old, then you might kind of think now, oh, TikTok's kind of pointless. But you'd have said the same thing about Facebook eight years ago. You whereas like now my gran and all of her friends who are like in their 70s, 80s are all on Facebook. And this is a thing we would have joked about when we when it first came out. Whereas if TikTok keeps going the way it is, being an entertainment platform, it will age up. And I think you can see the amount of people that are transitioning to it now, it's quickly aging up. So to be there, even just before your audience get there, you'll have experience on that platform. And then when your audience do transition over to it, you'll already be there providing good content. And then they'll be like, boom, okay, well, this is the account I'm going to follow. Whereas other people will just wait until they see other people start to do it first. So it's almost like being an early adopter, even though it's just an early adopter for your audience rather than an early adopter for the whole platform. Yeah, for sure. And you you mentioned there t- TikTok being an entertainment platform and we've got friends who work at TikTok and that's that's certainly internally, they don't call it social media, they call it entertainment. So think about the videos that you are making on TikTok and are they entertaining? Because that's literally what the platform is built for, like from the mouths of the creators. So make entertaining videos on there. I, I was talking to someone recently and and there's a, a really nice hack that um that is is easy for anyone to use on TikTok. Find a creator who's really popping off on TikTok that's got like sixty thousand followers, hundred thousand, or even up to the millions. Most of them will have their Instagram attached. You can then go to their Instagram and they've probably got 4,000 followers or 10,000 followers on Instagram because the growth is so much quicker on TikTok that normally they're, they're lower on Instagram. Then you just hit them up on the Instagram DM. You're getting through to a a creator that has hundreds of thousands of followers but you're messaging them on the platform where they're going to see it because they only have a few thousand followers. Um, and it's a really great hack of, of for influencer marketing. So the, the person that I was talking to is a video maker, filmmaker, wants to collab with loads of TikTokers because he knows that that's going to grow his account. Um, but he's hitting up the Instagram DMs as to get access to them. And so that's I just think that's a really quick hack that I wanted to throw in there. That's always a good way. I've done that quite a few times where 
there's been people that I want to get in contact with who I know run big brands and their account might have, say, a million followers or something. So, you know, if you message them, there's a good chance they won't see it because they'll get messaged by people all the time uh, or it might even be managed by someone else. But then quite often those people will have like a brand or a personal account or something that's separate to the the big thing that they put out to the, the world. And actually by contacting them through a small brand that they run or something like that, it's always thinking about, well, how can I get through to these people where they have the biggest chance to see it? Because if you just go the same route that everyone else goes, then there's a good chance you're just going to get forgotten or missed like everyone else is. So trying to find those other little windows, like um, a guest I'm trying to get at the moment, I was like, trying to find like I could definitely wouldn't be able to get to them through their main Instagram account so I was like okay well can I find an email address that might be linked to the company that might be linked to uh, be a way to be able to get them on the show so even kind of like looking at okay well who do they have an a press app email address or do they have a PR company who's representing them who you might be able to go through them to get directly to them or can you provide value for one of their friends and then by providing value for one of their friends, then you actually get the introduction to them personally from a friend recommendation. Yeah, oh, there's there's so many good little routes into getting to network with people rather than just trying to go the generic route. So I really think like the way that the world is heading, a, a presence on social media, no matter what account it's on, can be really helpful to people um, in, in the future, whether they're going to be self-employed or whether they they are going to work for, even work for a company. I think it's still a good thing to have. Um, and I think the evidence of that is, is this week's guest, um, Sophia Smith-Gayler, who she's working for the BBC, but she also has this huge social media presence. She's got a book deal because of her social media presence, not because of her day job. And I think just the opportunities that are afforded someone that that does have this presence that that can speak to people that has opinions and and is is engaging a tribe of people around them i think it's such a useful thing to have even if you're choosing to go a more mainstream i'm going to be employed kind of route it gives you so much more freedom with your future options yeah and i think what's interesting about sophia is sophia is a journalist and when you think about tiktok well when most people think about tiktok who haven't used the platform yet they just picture it as being teenagers dancing Whereas actually the platform is so much more than that. There's so much more on there. And I think where Sophia has been so successful, she was one of the first journalists on the platform, on a platform that doesn't normally, like you wouldn't expect there to be journalists. So if, if you do something that isn't dancing or something that you would expect to be on the platform, actually going on there and being that first person to do the thing that you do on there, you are going to see growth and success there. It might take a little bit of a while for the algorithm to catch up with you, but it will work. Yeah. And I mean, even, even after all of her success, there's still no, not many journalists on the platform. So yeah. I, I think whoever is listening to this, that's, that's waiting to go on TikTok, they've been thinking, oh, I might be something that I have a go at. Like today's the day, just go and start because there's, there's so much opportunity on that platform. You can grow so fast and it just seems like an opportunity that a lot of people are missing, especially if you're doing something that's not on the platform already, because you're just going to, you're going to get attention. Cool. So let's get into this week's episode. Hi, Sophia. Hello. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we really wanted to get you on because I, I think you're such an interesting case and you're different to most guests that we've had on before in that you are currently employed by the BBC, working for the World Service, producing documentaries and doing loads of amazing stuff. But you also have this whole other side of a social media presence and audience across multiple different platforms, the main one being TikTok. Um, but I just thought it'd be really interesting to get someone on who is not just 
one thing that they're doing. They're like truly multi-hyphenate and they're kind of existingly employed by someone that we've all, all heard of, the BBC. What came first, the job of the BBC or the building yourself up on social media? Definitely the former. Social media has always been a huge part of my journalism. Before I entered the journalism industry, I was keenly interested in social media, but I was never big on it. Uh, I was just quite a stereotypical lurker or someone who would sort of tweet into the ether without necessarily people replying or caring about what it was I said. Uh, this was back in, I mean, I was at university 2012 to 2016. And social media for us back then was just, if we went clubbing, someone would bring remarkably a digital camera and take pictures of us all on the night out. And the next day we'd all dread being tagged um, and what we'd see. And for me, that was the highlight of my my life and social media. It was pictures being shared on Facebook. And it's really quite bizarre, almost a decade later, um, how how different it is and how large a part social media does play in my life. But it's, I would say things like TikTok have come about for me because I'm a video journalist and because I am naturally attracted to video platforms, both from a personal level, but also from a professional level. I do feel the pressure to keep an eye on any new uh, video developments or apps that crop up. You mentioned TikTok there specifically. I know loads of journalists who are on Twitter but I don't see any on TikTok. Um, has, how's that been? Do you feel sort of lonely on there or is it quite cool that you really are one of the only voices talking about journalism on the platform? That's a really interesting point because I think as journalists, we use Twitter because it's where our, we know our colleagues already are and it's where experts and opinion makers are. So if we want our stories to travel widely, uh, we know that they can be reliable people in, in order to help those stories travel. But ultimately, are they who we're doing our stories for? And for me, at the World Service, where I have a remit to reach younger global audiences, those younger global audiences are not on Twitter. They're on they're on other platforms. They're on Instagram. They're on TikTok. They're on YouTube. And right from when I started doing lots of lots more original journalism you know I come from a background where I have no contacts in the journalism industry nor do I particularly have contacts in any industry of power and for me a way that I found stories has been using the internet trawling through forums and groups and comment sections to get a sense of conversation and what's important to people and for me especially younger audiences. So I use platforms like TikTok and Instagram not only to find stories but to share them because that's my my stories come from and are for younger audiences. I think that's really interesting because I think in researching you I I heard you talk about how you actually use TikTok as a way to source news stories and journalism. And I was like that is amazing. I never would have thought that that would be the place to go and source information, but then I suppose it's if you're appealing to that demographic, then of course that's where those conversations are going to be had. And I think that's where things can often get quite disconnected is when people don't actually go to the places where the conversations are happening. They just assume based on their own experiences what those what that generation is thinking. Yes. And if you talk to anyone under twenty-five, let's say in the UK, and you ask them 
Uh, do they consume news? And if so, where from? A lot of them will probably struggle to actually give you the name of, of a brand. Um, we, we're really, uh, news publishers are losing brand attribution um, it, throughout social media. And it's because people are encountering news content, but they don't want to consume it or they don't quite find what usually worked engaging anymore. Um, and now all of this news is coming from very disparate sources. And one way that I've kind of tried to challenge that is um, my face becomes my brand attribution. My style of TikTok becomes my brand attribution. And at least someone can know that they can get, uh, whether it's news or interesting content, um, there's this new word going around on TikTok called ed edutainment. It's the idea that you're learning something informative and educational, but it's also engaging and entertaining. In reality, there's been tons of edutainment for years on, on linear broadcasting as well. But I really like how TikTok and YouTube, especially as platforms, are really owning this space. And that's that's my attitude. I've made I've tried to make myself a brand and an ambassador for where I work. Are the BBC like really supportive of that or do they just not really know that it's going on because it's your obviously everyone's allowed to have social media accounts are they aware that you've got this massive audience and they are they aware that that kind of the documentaries that you're making are gonna have more views because of the audience that you're bringing with you the bbc does not publish content on tiktok in a news capacity editorially i mean um there is a bbc account but it's the master brand so that's the content side that's things like eastenders and and tv shows like that mm. It's not necessarily in the remit of my job role either to do original journalism. Uh, I'm mainly expected to deliver video content for world service programming, existing programming. Um, so the majority of everything that I do is quite independent of my day job. Because when I first found you, you were doing content around being in the BBC, which I just found really interesting. Just the day-to-day -day life of a journalist or, or someone who works for the world service, which was from what I, from my experience of the world service was like, it's this thing that we're going to listen to if the end of the world comes. Um, is that true? There's like, isn't there like some music that's going to be, that go out on the world service if, if we come to the end of the world. Anyway, that's a rumor <laughs> I heard. Um, so I have that in my head and then I just have it of, of like, it was this thing that old people listen to. I don't, I don't know why that was in my head. It wasn't until I found you that I actually got interested and then started like consuming some of the documentaries and stuff that are on there. Given that I read on your website that you're the first faith and ethics video journalist that like that has ever existed within that title, it gives you such a like wide scope of, of topics that you can cover, which must be quite, I don't know, it, it, like exciting for you because you can go in so many different directions. Thrilling. And I also find it a space that journalists but equally people in in religious spaces are still struggling to understand the heightened role that the internet's now playing so a lot of the stories that i've developed have been again connected to the internet and social media and how that might be changing how people experience uh their faith and equally certainly before the pandemic i got to travel quite a lot uh and it was wonderful that that i had the opportunity to do that as well but it's certainly a very, a very, very far-reaching role. Uh, I, what I'd like to do more of in the future is really expand more on the ethics side, because we don't really talk much about ethics day to day. We 
simply because we don't label our conversations necessarily as conversations around ethics. But think, for example, how often sexual consent is now appearing as a conversation topic or an issue um, that is ethical. That is an ethical issue. Um, And we've kind of we seem to have lost our ability to spot things as being uh, ethical issues. We, We will label them as political issues or we'll label them as this and that. And we forget. Uh, how actually we map quite a lot of our own moral values onto what's going on day to day and what we're hearing about in the news. And we're not necessarily engaging with that. That is really interesting. TikTok, I think, is such a, a like a fantastic platform. I know you're a big fan of it as well. Obviously, as with everything, it does have its its disadvantages. But I find myself now, like, so you know how people say, oh, I'm on goth TikTok or I'm on, when when your For You page is just continuously showing you various things. Like, I am firmly in, like, um, gay and lesbian TikTok, like, all the time. And I'm a straight white man myself. I don't know why I get shown so much of that content. But the the things that are coming up that I think are so crucial for young people is just, like, behaviours and, like, I, I feel so positive for young kids growing up now that they are going to be able to recognise like what's okay, what's not okay, because it's being spoken about on these platforms. Like it's, I'm seeing stuff every single day, and especially when it comes to things like consent, that that's not like as a boy in school, I was never told like to about consent. I mean, I th- I think from my family and just through common sense, I kind of got the picture. But I know a lot of boys don't get the picture and they don't work it out until much later on in life. Whereas if I'm 15 now and I'm look, or or if I'm a toddler now and my mum's watching these TikToks where the mum is going to the baby, like, I'm going to cuddle you, is that all right? And they're asking for, for consent for a cuddle when they're like three. Like, this is such a beautiful thing that, that will have ripples out into society, I think. It's going to be fascinating when Gen Z grows up. Uh, a lot of them are already pretty grown up. But I mean, when they properly grow up yeah. and when they have hold positions of power, it'll be really interesting because I don't think there's been any generation that has been so literate about the kind of issues that you're talking about. The millennial and slightly older generation are a little more literate and they are steadily making laws or improving curricula to introduce these things. And obviously the impact of those things do take a generation to really, or perhaps even longer, uh, to fully reap, um, reap rewards. And so it will be interesting, but I completely agree with you in that I, I learn an awful lot from content that I, I engage with online that I do not feel like I had access to when I was at school, nor did I have access to when I went to a top UK university. So it's quite alarming when you think, think, wow, I, I had the privilege of being educated in the places that I was educated in. And yet as an adult in many spaces, I feel incredibly uneducated and I've had to do a lot of the learning myself. Yeah, we got a DM on Instagram this morning from someone who's just graduated with a graphic design degree and they were asking us what they should do next. And I was just like, I was just thinking, well, shouldn't you, shouldn't you have been told that? Like that should be part of your curriculum. Like there's so much that we're, that we're not learning. Um, and, and so I am so grateful um, for these platforms. I, I think 
now would be a good time to uh, mention your book that you're working on. Could you let us know a little bit about it and, and where the idea came from? Yeah, so it's called Losing It, Dispelling the Sex Myths That Rule Our Lives. And it's very rooted in the kind of journalism that I do that we've been talking about. So religion journalism, uh, cultural journalism, and the way that our these cultural myths around things like virginity um, and other cultural myths about sex influence our lives, influence our health, our happiness, and our human rights around the world. And the idea came about, I mean, I was very lucky that I was scouted essentially by HarperCollins who'd spotted my journalism and my growing TikTok fame. Uh, and the editor, Grace Pengeli, saw something in me. and. I have always loved writing. It was actually the first um, thing that I loved about journalism. Back when I was at university, I became the music editor of the uni newspaper. I just wanted, i my dream was like to work at Enemy. Um, I just wanted to write about the music that was I felt like was changing my life and changing how I looked at the world. Um, I spent my childhood growing up my adolescence training to be an opera singer. And then I eventually decided that I'd pursue journalism instead. And I've never lost that fascination um, with music and performance. Um, anyway, so writing has always been my first love and work has kind of lulled me into video journalism. And I enjoy video journalism, but I'm a, I think I'm a far better writer, frankly, than I am a video journalist. And so when Grace asked, said to me, would you would you ever think about writing a book? I was like, yeah, but I didn't think I'd do it. I didn't think I'd get a book deal when I was 26, which is what ended up happening. Um, and when conversations like that happen, um, you're not necessarily prepared with an idea. And I wasn't. I came up with a few. Uh, all of them were kind of about faith and women, which is what a lot of my reporting's about. And then one night it was like a eureka moment. Um, and I realised that this is the book that I needed growing up that I didn't have. And if someone had written it, my life would have been saved so many problems, which, which I speak about in the book. And it would have saved my friends so many problems. And the minute you, you look outside of the UK and you look at what's going on in other countries, my problems pale in comparison to some of the things that people have to go through. And it's undeniable that a lot of these things perniciously affect women far more than they do men. That being said, there are a lot of issues around masculinity that aren't really being addressed and certainly cultural myths around sex and masculinity that are also not being talked about and internet wormholes are making these conversations even worse and even mm. more impossible to have. And that's this eureka moment hasn't stopped every day every conversation i have i've now had so many conversations about sex that i never thought i would have i never thought that would be the route that my career would go down but um the minute you open up these conversations everyone has a story to share everyone the minute that you start probing the social scripts or the gender scripts that we believe when it comes to sex and romance um, the minute that you say, does it have to be that way? Is that the way it should be? Is that just the way it is? And suddenly it makes you completely almost reversion your sexual biography or history or indeed the future that you plan um, because you realise that actually things things don't have to be this way. 
um, and things might be a lot better if they're another way or if I, if I, I looked at something differently or if I persuaded someone else to look at it differently. And that's what's probably kept me going, given that I've had to deliver it around a full-time job and a viral TikTok account. Um, <laughs> I have had to make priorities in my life. I've had to balance, you know, things differently at different times. Um, always prioritizing my day job, but um, my priority between the book and TikTok differentiates depending when I have a deadline or not. But there's no way I would be able to do the book and like you you were saying before, have a multi-hyphenate career if I didn't have this burning desire to write this book that keeps me awake at night and wakes me up in the morning raring to go. I think if I kind of felt half-assed about it, uh, I wouldn't have delivered on time. Um, It really is the book that um, could have saved so much, so much pain. Definitely. So when it comes to your presenting style, um, and and the things that you choose to talk about when I when we consume news nowadays it's ninety nine percent negative. Um, you spend a good amount of time reporting on things that are positive, like good news stories. Um, is that something that's important to you? I mean, given that we know that more clicks go to negative stuff because we because of our the way weird way that our brains are wired. Um, how important is it to you to try and balance that scale? Even if, do you, do you kind of worry about your positive news stories not doing as well as maybe something that's more shocking or has like negative um, implications to it? Well, we do know that good news stories work really well with younger audiences. So it wouldn't necessarily be right. the case uh, that a negative news story would be clicked more. If anything, I would anticipate it would be clicked less because younger audiences would be like, gosh, that's depressing. I'm not going to read that. Um, or watch Great. that but I what I would say is I do not the kind of journalism I do the role that I hold is not an on the diary news job there are people who have to do the news every day um, and they will have to report on breaking news stories and they'll have to report on um, stuff that's been planned and like the kind of political agenda um, it's always figures being released this and that um, And I am lucky that I am in a role where I can instead focus on larger, longer term themes, I suppose. Um, What's important to me, and this is something that I really pay attention to, especially in my films that I make, even if um, even if a film is about something not particularly happy, there has to be a positive slant to it. And by that, I mean there has to be a solution. Um, We call it solutions-focused journalism. But if you highlight a problem, you also have to show what the solution is. And sometimes it's so bad for the individuals, there's no solution, but they say something so moving about how they are coping with it. That's that's the solution for the piece. Um, I'm working on a story at the minute, a film that I've been editing all day. And it's about something really bad that happened to someone four years ago, but they've come through it. And we're using that thing that happened to them four years ago to touch upon a topic that's very rarely spoken about in the UK, um, but exists. Uh, So it's like an underreported issue. But the way I hope that in the film, the way that I've really made him a kind of main character of it, and you, you see him talk about his past and 
contrast and showing his past and then contrasting to where he is now. Um, and that should be, if I do my job right, that should be a film that moves you. And yes, it's about something not necessarily is going to make you smile, but it is going to make you think. Um, and while we know that positive story solutions, focused stories work for younger audiences, it's important also not to, to patronise them. They really are news hungry. They just want news served to them in a different way to previous generations. And when you're putting together um, like a documentary or any form of journalism, how do you move someone with what you're portraying? Like, is there anything that you think oh, actually by using these kind of strategies or these kind of words, like how can you evoke that emotion? In this case, um, I'm very fortunate that the contributor has previous footage of himself. Um, and that half does the job for me because you can see what he was and where he is now. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a device that helps the audience understand, wow, he looks very different now. Um, something else that I do, I I mean, the way that I film, which is the way that pretty much all of us film now, but for, for non-journalists, this might be, a, oh, I never realised that. Um, certainly anyone watching the video version of this will know that if I was doing a television interview, I would be looking that way Uh or I, you know, would be positioned looking that way. So kind of diagon a diagonal shot. Yeah. Um, whereas if I'm filming, it is straight to camera. Um, so that the so that the person telling their story is telling it to you, the viewer. Um, that's a way as well. And um I I think in my questioning, I also try and I try and lull emotion out and Normally that's actually really, really easy because I'm already interviewing someone who wants to tell their story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so all all I have to think about is how best to guide them. And sometimes even happens with, with me when I'm being interviewed. You start speaking at the beginning of the interview and you're a bit you're a bit hesitant and you're trying to find what it is that you're saying. And you get 15 minutes in, and all of a sudden everything starts coming and you start framing you start framing what it is that you're trying to say and some someone says something um and then I almost always ask at the end of an interview especially when it's about a difficult past experience I say if someone is watching this video and is going through exactly what you went through what would you say to them and I always end my interviews with that right uh, and then to condense that down to something that's going to be as a social media clip, say like 30 seconds, oh, 15 seconds. Yeah, nightmare. <laughs> I heard you say before that you have to try and make someone think and feel within one second. How the hell yeah. do you make someone do that? Oh, yeah, it's hard. Um, facial expression, got to capture something, um, really good headline. Uh, TikTok, the way that TikTok does this is that you kind of have to front everything really, really at the front of the video. Um, or pose a, que a bonkers question uh, that the audience will then want an answer from. Um, and so, for example, the film I'm making right now, I already know that the title of it is a tad, is a tad clickbaity, but not in a gratuitous way. Yeah. Like what I'm saying is literally what happened to this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not misleading um, someone. It's not misleading, no, it, but it, it's really like, what? Uh, and so I'm hoping that that, would will help as well um but you're right in that it is really really difficult and i find when i do tiktoks and i can script it 
and deliver it, I can begin the video with one of these moments and try and get someone that way. Yeah. Whereas when you are filming someone and trying to construct a whole story where I also have the pressure of bringing in context and introducing things, you know, for legal reasons and this and that, it's far, far harder. So just, it really depends what kind of content it is that you're making. Are you uh, excited that TikTok now does three minute um, clips? Do you think that'll be something that you'll be jumping on? You know what? I am not... 100% sure that a three-minute video has yet come on my For You page. And mm. that's possibly because maybe some videos have come on it that are one minute 20. And I haven't noticed because I've been so, you know, immersed in it. But until I start seeing these longer formats performing well, I'm not going to do them. I think that's a great tactic with any platform, isn't it? It's like, look to see what the platform's pushing. If you're not seeing it, that means the platform's not going to push it. So wait until you start to see it. And as soon as you do, then I suppose that's the time to jump on it. Was there like a magic moment where you noticed your TikTok really start to explode? Or was it like just gradual growth that was fairly consistent? It has been gradual and consistent, but that's partly down to my, um, that's partly down to my own strategy on there. So as much as, as there are lots of things I would like to do with my TikTok. I have a full-time job and I now have a pretty full-time book that I've been writing around it. Um, certainly, I think if, I think my future strategy with TikTok is no longer going to be the one TikTok a day that I used to do. And this, I'm talking about sort of last year um, before the book came into the picture. That is part of the reason it was a gradual increase because I demonstrated commitment to the platform and commitment to my followers. Now I can kind of rest on my laurels a bit. I'm not here thinking, I'm, I never think, God, okay, I've reached this. Now I need to get such and such followers and now I've done this. Blah. I don't think like that. Um, yeah, I have too many other things I want to achieve in my life that are not that. I can pinpoint areas where my following has dramatically grown in a short period of time. Um, so, for example, when I did the sea shant the Suez Canal sea shanty, which is my most viral yeah. content today, <laughs> um, which is, uh, you know, you really know when something has gone viral when it makes an impact on like boomer media, which is how I refer to <laughs> of, of my world, <laughs> like it, you know, yeah. how the, the Suez Canal sea shanty made the front page of Egypt's most read newspaper, and it made um, Greg James's Radio One breakfast show which is mad. Um, but in the, in the, the, the period around releasing that video, which I can't remember how many millions of views it did on TikTok, but it was a few, I kind of got 20,000 followers out of that. Uh, a lot of them from Egypt, unsurprisingly, but <laughs> yeah. moments like that obviously deliver a lot, but otherwise, generally speaking on TikTok, I'm guaranteed to go up by about a hundred followers a day. Cool. So it's fairly consistent. I think the, the beauty that you have, with having an employer, it frees you up to um, that. There's no pressure on your TikTok for it to be monetized. For there's, you're not feeling that pressure of I've got to grow a thousand followers a day, otherwise I'm not going to be able to pay the bills. Certainly, I wouldn't say, however, that um, it's without pressure because I am one of the only journalists on there, and I've been celebrated as one of the only journalists w like doing well on there. I do feel like I need to keep doing well. Uh, even though I've had I, a book deal and everything, I still feel like I have to keep working really hard at it. 
Um, and I am constantly coming up with ideas here and there for it. Um, and I think obviously it's pressure that I'm putting on myself because no one is telling me to make, <laughs> no one's telling me to make these TikToks. Yeah. Um, but I, it's strange that I do feel pressure, even though like, like you described, I don't have to rely on it, on it for income. In fact, I don't, um, I'm not part of the creator fund or anything. As long as you're having fun, right? I think as soon as it trips over into this kind of, pressure of growth which is something i've definitely felt in the past as soon as you get over that and you're like okay i like this account is for me i'm i'm gonna do it as long as it's fun then i think that's that's the important thing to remember because as soon as it trips over into becoming a chore then it's just not worth it anymore yes and if something is i've always done tiktok as well as twitter if you if you look at my tweets um, I'd say there's like one half of journalist Twitter that's really, really um, kind of quite austere and they'll never tweet about anything other than retweeting articles and tweeting their own articles. That's never even, that's never been me on Twitter. I will tweet my journalism. I'll also tweet memes. I'll also tweet jokes. I will roast my friends. Um, I've always been myself, whatever the social media platform. And it just so happens that being myself on TikTok is something that 250,000 people around the world like. Uh, that's not been the case with Twitter and Instagram. I've not, I've not got a following that big on those social platforms. Um, but I think the minute I would find it a chore, like you say, I would no longer be myself. Something, mm -hmm. something would must slip. Something must crack. I'd no longer be myself. Um, I would surely lose, like, in, it's not really, engagement isn't the noun, it's like engagingness. Um, but I, I think something would happen and people wouldn't want to watch me anymore. Um, I wouldn't want to watch me. And so it's really, really important to me that I stay being myself and that I don't let anything, whether it's the old-fashioned stereotypical idea of what a journalist should be or what people tell me I should be, um, it's really important that I just stick to my guns on this. So may maybe it comes from having performed a lot and, and doing the whole opera thing and you're, you're kind of a natural performer, but have you got any tips for people? Because the first time you pick up TikTok or whatever app it might be and you face the camera towards yourself, it's quite a daunting moment. Have you got any tips of people to feel more comfortable on how they can actually Pre present themselves across because because I think that's the scariest thing isn't it it's like it's really beautiful for you to say like I, I just go on there and I be myself but sometimes being yourself is the hardest thing to be because if people don't like it then you feel like oh people don't like me because I I showed up as myself like how have you dealt with like any sort of rejection or, or nervousness of turning the camera towards yourself my advice is help yourself. Help yourself look good. Um, the technical side can't be forgotten, right? Remember to think about things like lighting. And when I say think about lighting, face a source of natural light. Easy. Find a window and do it in front of it. The minute you start doing these things that make you feel like, oh, now I look a bit more like how they look on TikTok when, when they're doing a really interesting video, you start feeling like you are occupying that role. Um, and the incredible thing about a platform like TikTok is that the algorithm can just spin you um, into having created something viral. Um, if, if, if the algorithm picks up that people are 
re-watching it, they're replaying it, they're saving it, they're commenting it. It will send it to other people who it thinks um, will also enjoy the video as well. Um, you, and because of that, there are so many niche communities online. Even if you think, oh, no one cares about what I have to say, I promise you there will be someone who cares about what you have to say. Think about how the people who you most admire and the people who already make content in this space, how they sell it, how they do it. Um, and think about the things that they do that you think, oh yeah, I think I can do that. And the things they do that you're like, mm, that's actually something I don't really like. And you develop your own style. And I would say it only comes with practice. Um, it, you, you kind of just have to, there's no other way you're going to learn how to do it than doing it. And in fact, that's how I made my first TikTok. I didn't get a TikTok lesson. I, I didn't know anything. I just spent some time on there, saw a trend that was going viral. And I thought, oh, okay, let me try and do it. And I remember doing it with a colleague. Um, you know, you had to have to refilm bits because it was like, oh, I didn't realize that button did that. And oh. But you do that and you learn, you learn how it works. Um, and it's great. A little bit down the road, you have a quarter of a million followers and Bob's your own. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Sophia, so fun to talk to you. Um, where can people find you online? Oh, everywhere. If you can't find me, I've done something wrong, <laughs> but you can find <laughs> me on TikTok, obviously, at Sophia Smith Gala. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as well, at Sophia S. Gala. You can find my reporting all over the BBC website. But if you want to find a little neat home for where some of my favourite pieces that I've worked on are, I do have a personal website unsurprisingly www.sphiersmithgale.com and that's where you'll also find a link to my book which will be out in early 2022 lovely thank you Legend. so much thank you for having Amazing. me